Welcome to episode 174 of Control the Controllables. And what an unbelievable fortnight it's been in, in New York City, Flushing Meadows, you know, where the drama happens, you know, sellout crowds under the lights, and we've had tennis to go alongside it. We've had our youngest ever world number one on the ATP since the rankings were alive in 1973 in Carlos Alcaraz, the, the superstar that is being born in front of our eyes, uh, winning in four sets against Casper Ruud and coming from match points down in his match earlier on in the tournament against Yannick Sinner. He found himself, even the round before that, he found himself a breakdown in the fifth set. You know, he really did come back from the dead on many occasions and is just a, an inspiration to us all and an equally amazing inspiration on the women's side as our friend Iga Sviantek won her third Grand Slam. You know, she earlier on in the year, I think she went 38 matches in a row without losing. She's now 49 wins out of her last 53 matches. She adds... US Open to her two Roland Garros titles and proves she can play on more than just a clay court. And what I love about both of those incredible winners, they're both incredible people. They live the way that you should live. They play with a smile on their face. They play with excitement. And they're always putting people first when you hear them in their interviews. They're much loved on the tour. And we have a treat over the next 15 years, 20 years, the way that the modern game is going as we watch them. We've had lots of storylines. Serena Williams obviously was talked about in our preview. She didn't disappoint, you know, but we still don't know. Is that her final ever match that we see? She's left the door slightly open. Some kind of cool storylines. Tracy Austin's son, Brandon Holt, qualifying, winning his first round match against Taylor Fritz, who I think everyone really fancied to go the distance or certainly be the longest lasting American male player. But Francis Tiafoe took that role up. Mary Jo Fernandez, her son, won a match on, in the doubles tour. And then Christian Rude, who was the who was the highest ranked ever Norwegian male tennis player until his son, Kasper Rude has come along and blown that away as he moves to world number two and makes his second grand, grand makes his second Grand Slam final of the year. I have Nor Ruben who promised me he wasn't going to go watch the US Open. Why would he do that? It was too hot. But his good friend Chris Eubanks got him over to Flushing Meadows to watch him in his singles match. So we have Nor joining us again. And we also have Freddie Nielsen, our ever-present on these panels. A couple of the guys couldn't make it. Tournaments are going on. I myself am actually in a, in a place called Melia, which is in Spain, but it's actually a little, it's on just, it's attached to Morocco. I'm here for, a, for an ITF pro circuit event as well. So if the noise, the sound is not quite what it normally is, I, I do apologise. I don't have all of my kit with me. But it was amazing that we were able to tie times up to have the chat that we've had. It's well worth a listen. You'll love it. Some great topics. 
and we'd love to hear your thoughts at the end as well. But I'm going to pass you over to our US Open review panelists. So a big welcome to our US Open 2022 review. And I've got Noah Rubin beside me and Freddie Nielsen across the world in El Salvador, ready for the Davis Cup. And Ruben, I believe, in New York City, where the excitement's happened over the last two weeks. And I think we have to start with last night. And, I mean, it, it feels as if the men's game, Carlos Alcaraz, is, is taking it to another level with speed, agility, touch, power, control. You know, you name it. You're supposed to be good at a couple of those things, but but not all of them. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable watching him play. I mean... Yeah, and Freddie and I were talking about this before, about I was uh, trying to live tweet throughout the, the past week, and it was absolutely exhausting, but I did watch my probably my first full five-set match, and I can't remember how long, uh, and I was with uh, Sinner and Alcaraz. So, you know, the finals, as much as they were gunning for the number one spot, and there was a lot on the line, you know, it was going to be somewhat anticlimactic no matter what. I think we were all gunning for Alcarez. I mean, if he wasn't going to take this title, it was kind of be a failure of the week because of how well he was playing. And and beyond that, I don't know if you could have a much better tennis match than Sinner or Alcarez. And I'm watching those guys just battle it out. So, yeah, I mean, I said it. I think Alcrez is probably the most well-rounded tennis player we've ever seen. I don't know if he can, I don't know why not, but I don't know why, you know, if he can keep this up or not. I don't know if he's going to break Grand Slam records or not, um, but he has about uh, 60 Grand Slams to play. And, you know, to think that he can't get 15 of those or 20 of those, um, I don't know. I think it's pretty exciting to watch him. And from a from a physical perspective, Freddie, it, it it does feel as if they're taking it to a bit of a, a new level again, you know, to, you know, the, just the speed. I mean, I, I was even watching the, the amount of times that Alcaraz hits a volley about two inches from the net. And I swear to God, a second earlier, he was on the back fence, you know, like the ability to transition up back, the positions they're getting on the court and be in behind the ball. You know, what, what is that? Is that, is the training changing? Is, 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 is diets evolving? You know, what, what, what's happening in, in the world of tennis? I think there's definitely a change in the way people train. I think it is the train of modern tennis. Carlos is my, maybe not the tallest guy, but in general, people are getting taller and moving like uh, back in the days the, the, the smaller people did. I mean, if you see like Tsitsipas, Zverev, these kind of guys, they're tall people. And in the 90s, they would probably just be bombing serves and hitting the ball hard. But now, because I think they put so much emphasis into the, to the, to the mobility side, to the training side, to the technique of the footwork, they're so strong out of the side positions and all this, that, that the athletes are just completely... Uh, different and obviously it's also a sign of the times because the, the balls are bigger the surfaces are slower so if you want to compete you got to be able to compete from the baseline and they're putting much more emphasis into into the both the physical strengthening but also the technique on the footwork and i think carlos is a good example of that because he is uh he is uh, able to move he's got speed uh, he's got good technique on his footwork and he can absolutely club it and i think those are the kind of guys you see they don't serve as well as they have uh, back in the day, but they still um, serve all right. I think I saw a, seed, uh, a tweet, I think it was Robbie Koenig who said that there hasn't been a, 
a male win of a slam since Gaston Gaudio, who won as little points on his first serve as Khaled is this week. Uh, 69%, that, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, and I think that just shows that the, the tennis is transitioning into a more uh, different era where, where the bombing of serve doesn't really get you as far as it used to. So I think it's a sign of the times. I think it's uh, tennis has created a necessity to be that if you want to compete the way the conditions are. And I think we're going to see more and more people like that. And, and no, you did, I followed you with, um, I always think you're, you're entertaining. You know, I think you're, you're never shy of giving an opinion. Um, I, I followed your tweets and, and there was certainly a, a couple of things that you alluded to. I think certainly five set matches, you know, you, you aren't in general a, a big fan of. Um, you, were, you were questioning what the guys were eating. You know, was it Carlos Alcaraz's berries or was it was it Sinner's pizza? You know, what was it that was getting these guys in the shape that they're in? So, so give us a little bit, little bit more meat on the bone of a tweet. You know, you can't you can't say what you want to say in the characteristics of 120, but yeah. here on this podcast, you, you've got the floor. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, as we all know, you know, as much as that Sinner match will probably go down as one of the better matches of even this decade um probably you know definitely have the new era but um you know kids won't be able to watch that match or weren't able to watch that match you know maybe they get highlights after but you know you know even i mean my parents are pretty lenient but they weren't allowing me to stay up until 2 a.m you know to watch any tennis match and that's just kind of how it worked and you know they were making fun where it was perfect for europeans now you know bright and early in the morning you guys are awake but you know we're supposed to do it for the um demographic that we're playing in so in new york the fact that you know uh, a lot of the kids that i've seen at clubs at local clubs won't be able to watch that full match live uh, is i think extremely disappointing um and that's there's a fundamental issues with tennis that make scheduling just impossible you know there's there's no time there's no clock you don't know when match is going to go on um i guess you can make the night session an hour earlier or so, but I don't know how much that's going to help. You know, that's still 1 a.m. instead of, you know, 2 a.m. So in terms of that, I struggle. I think best of five should start in the quarters. I don't think there's a need for it uh, before that. I, I don't know. You know, I know that uh, Chilich match uh, was still a great match. I did not get to watch that one. But I, I think if that's best of three and then you go into the quarters and then you start grinding away, I think that's better on everybody, you know, people working there, the commentators, broadcasters, everything else. I mean, I saw a fantastic picture of Alcaraz with the fans at the end and you had the um, security guards giving eyes like, can we just get out of here, man? Like we just got to get the fuck out of here. So um, yeah, that was really funny. That was, that was interesting and, and kind of alluded to that point of it just as much they're special, they're incredible, but you have a 28,000 person stadium with 4,000 people in it at the end. As much as it's special, I think there's things that have to change. Um, yeah, because I'm, the tickets, they say, just quickly, and I want to bring you yeah. back to that, the, the next point. They, 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 they do say that I, I think it broke all time attendance records last week at Flushing Meadows, you know, and it was, you know, the 23,859, I think they say it was sold out every single match, every single session, yet you've got. 10%, 15% of them in there at some point. So why, normally it's for TV rights, but I guess, t- why does, t- is, it, is it the European thing that they want the, t- the matches to be going so late? Why, why are the matches happening at those times? 
there's kind of a unique feel to it. And I totally understand that it's something that will only happen at a night match, Arthur Ashe stadium. It's something that is special to the sport, but for me, whether it's, you know, 2 AM or 11 PM or 10 30, you know, that's still late and it still has that same feel. I think that has to, the connotation around what late is and what a night match or Arthur Ashe is has to change a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I, again, I struggled with it. I, I was in a hotel room. I was away uh, during that match, and I was, like, one eye open, like, kind of from the side, even at the level of tennis it was, still forcing yeah. myself to stay awake at 2.30 in the morning. So, um, yeah, I think, again, there's ways to keep that love for these unique tennis matches, uh, but making them a little bit more mainstream. And the second point around <laughs> the mixed berries and the pizzas. Yeah, uh, I've been in pretty good shape before. Um, you know, it's the one thing I probably attest a lot of my wins to. I know Freddie has seen me run down a few tennis balls in my life. Um, and during what I thought was, you know, pretty good shape. I mean, when I was 19, that was kind of when I was really having my, and, and I can attest it. he's 19 right now. Um, I had my first Grand Slam win at that age. And... I remember how my body was feeling. I remember, you know, putting in three, you know, qualifying matches. I, you know, I remember the aches and pains and, and I played a, you know, a four set match, you know, I was like going through this and I'm like, <laughs> what, what the fuck are they doing? Like, well, you know, what does this come down to in the end? Because whatever I was doing was obviously not working. And I felt like I was in pretty damn good shape. And I know that, you know, I was, not hitting the ball as big as he was maybe getting three points on the forehand side, but still in the end, the hours he put in and I loved, I use it all the time, him sliding out on his non-dominant leg in the fifth set. Every time I saw that, I was like, you got to be out of your, like you're out of your mind. You have to be crazy. So yeah, I was like, it must be the gluten-free diets, which didn't make sense because sinners, you know, probably eating pizza every other day. And then, you know, it might be one of these superfoods like acai or kale, but I, nothing's making sense to me that would not only allow Alcaraz to go deep in the fifth in these matches over and over again, but then to recover. I mean, he's going to sleep at 6 a.m. every match he was playing. You finish at 2.33, you are going to sleep at 6 a.m., probably on the conservative side, waking up, let's say, at 2, I don't know, and then doing it again. Like, I, not making a lot of sense to me. So... You know, I've been in good shape, played these matches, and I'm like, I'm pretty tired right now. <laughs> I don't know if I got four more of these in me. So maybe it's the evolution of tennis and I'm behind the times, but uh, it's the numbers aren't adding up. Well, wasn't he also close to being the most on a court in a slam ever? He is. No, he's the one. Number well, one. He, he, was above, yeah. he was four He was four hours above Casper Rude going into the final. And I, and I must admit, I thought Rude would, would get him. I didn't. Uh, even I saw Alcaraz at 4-2 in the first set and I thought he just looked to me like that tennis player that's going to be a bit frustrated and just things aren't quite going to go and and, and actually it, I we talk about the Sinner-Alcaraz match which was incredible I thought there was a 4 or 5 game period at the end of the third which really hit fire in the final last night and and that was the moment and Rude actually went away, didn't he? He played a really bad yeah. tiebreak. You know, he found the frame a couple of times on the backhand. You know, all of a sudden, he just missed a couple of balls he hadn't missed. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't... It would have been superhuman 
if Rude had gotten two sets to one up and, and for him to come back and to win that in five. And you know, I'm with you, Noah. I I I, I it, it does it seems it doesn't seem natural. It seems just it's an incredible uh, feat that's going on. And um, but Freddie to move to move into other stories. And I think if we stay on the men's side right now, I think we 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 talked about it. We always do. We never won't talk about him. Mr. Kyrgios, you know, he he knew again. He knew that it was he knew it was a chance. He knew it was an opportunity. He, he saw it. He, he couldn't quite get over the line. He he got fined as he always does. Um, he called people names as he always does, but he, he gave us entertainment as he always does as well. What, what do you think of Kyrgios and can he maintain this, you know, this new kind of desire to actually achieve in the sport? You know, how much longer is he going to achieve and, and keep that desire? I kind of think that he can because he's, he's shown it for me over a consistent period of time this year. Uh, he's been way more consistent. He's not been uh, skipping tournaments as much as he has. And he's been doing well against the uh, opponents that he historically maybe hasn't had the enthusiasm to, to give his best against. So I think he will. I think the rest of the year will be very interesting to see because I think he is also very slam motivated. And I don't know if he's got the energy. He, he's been mentioning that he was feeling missing home a little bit. And I don't know if he has the energy to come back and... Uh, get riled up for for Paris Bercy, for example, if that means enough to him. And I think in, in order for him to have a good finish, you would really need to qualify for Turin, which seems difficult uh, when when the points from Wimbledon don't count. So That's not motivating, is it? I don't think. I don't, I don't think those events are doing it for him. And, we, and you can no. even see, I mean... The, the one of my one of the videos and, and everyone handles these things differently and you've obviously got the ever professional Rafael Nadal he loses he shakes everyone's hands he he goes off but there was this kind of view that got almost like bird's eye view looking down at the court and Nick was just smashing like three or four rackets after he lost the match you know it, it really like seemed to get to him you know and almost of to the course. point where it's I think he really wanted it this time, and I think he also said that much afterwards, if I'm not mistaken. And he did. I mean, he's and that—that's that, in my opinion. This is what he's kind of protected himself against for all these years. Is is the heartbreak of losing these matches by not maybe applying himself as much, and now he is applying himself, and we see why it maybe was so difficult for him to apply himself as much before because he really takes it to to heart, and it and it hurts him. And I. There must have been more to that fine than uh, that he got because, I mean, I don't think breaking a racket is the most uh, insane thing you can do. So must have been more to it. I, I think that would be a shame if that, that was all he uh, got a fine for. I mean, how bad is that really at the end of the day? Would you prefer, would I prefer him not to do it? Yes, but he wasn't hurting anybody. He wasn't threatening anybody. He was showing his frustration. And we, we want... Uh, we want people to show their frustrations and show their human side and, and not be robots. And we want to relate to them and people want to see some, something outside the box and he brings that and it's natural. You want to see the not raw and natural emotions. And if it doesn't hurt anybody else, then yeah, give him a fine. Okay. Fair enough. You don't want to see it, but at the end of the day, does it have to be that big a fine? If it's just equipment yeah. change, I, I mean, Yeah. That that's where I stand anyway. But I and think he'll be. I, I think he'll be. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, of course there is. That's also why some of the hockey players in the NHL have it in their contract that they need to do a certain amount of fights every year. I mean, it's it's, it's something that the yeah. crowd wants to see. But, the, but, but the, to finish but the uh, to finish off my very long point, I, I think he's going to be ready for Australian Open to attack it and have a good tournament. I really do. I think he's going to be be up for 2023. And and no, on the men's side, I think we all talk big three, big three, nobody else. What happens? And all of a sudden, you're looking at the the quarterfinals. You're looking and you're saying, "Poor, hey, we've got some players." Then you've got an Alcaraz tier four matchup in the in the semifinals, and you know, someone who you know very well, we, we talked about in the preview, you know, it felt like there was going to be an American. Um, I don't know which genius it was of us that said that there was going to be one of the four Americans that was going to go quarterfinals or semifinals. Um, but we did talk about the American guys, that we were going to see somebody come through and TFO grabbed it. You know, he absolutely grabbed it. He's, he's yeah, a born entertainer. TFO? Who had TFO as the dark horse? Just wondering, does anybody remember? Oh, it was me. Come on, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> listen back. Listen back. But you've grown up. You've, know, you've known Francis. You know, and I guess tell the listeners, there'll be some diehards that will know all about Francis TFO, but there will be, there'll also be some people listening into this that have, have heard of Alcaraz. They've heard of Nadal. I've heard of Serena Williams, but this guy, this American guy, Francis Tiafoe, where's, where's he come from? So give us a bit of a background on, on Francis Tiafoe and why it seems like that the whole tennis world's behind him as well. Everyone seems to be happy for, for Francis that he's had such a breakthrough event as well. Yeah, I mean, I actually talked a little bit of this with Mike in our own pod. Um, you know, he he's an interesting one. He rides that wave almost better than any of definitely any American, but any tennis player that I've seen in a long time, he loves, you know, that atmosphere he feeds off of it. And what I've said about him is he's kind of unapologetically himself, you know, for anybody that knows him off the court, big smile. He's a clown cracking jokes, some good, some bad, but he's always, you know, <laughs> kind of, you know, trying to, you know, make lightheartedness of the situation and, and kind of just, you know, really enjoying himself the way he wants to enjoy himself. Um, you know, he's always been, you know, extremely talented. Um, I've, I've played him multiple times in the juniors from junior Wimby to Kalamazoo played him in doubles. And he's has kind of this utmost, uh, confidence in himself that he's going to succeed one way or another. I sadly gave him the win to bring in inside the top hundred for the first time when I lost to him, uh, at a Stockton challenger in the finals and that one absolutely killed me, but, you know, watching him there, you can see that he's going to play his game and he's going to make it work. Um, I think my issue and, and for others that have known, like a Mike Cation, I've seen him play many times. It was the honing in on that mental capability. It was the, how do we channel that? How do we bring that all together and say, Hey, you're, going to have to be a bit more professional than you are if you want to be at the top of the sport you're going you know you know you're a great athlete uh you know you're six two you're smack and serves 135 it's not enough and it won't be enough yeah. and what Wayne Ferreira has done is is truly incredible I mean that guy deserves a lot of credit for not only letting Francis be kind of the player that he is, but also saying, Hey, these are the things that we're going to hone in on that. You're just not going to do anymore. 
these practices are going to be more professional. You're, you know, we're, I saw an interview that said we're, we're doing runs without music, without phones. You know, you have no social media during treatment sessions. It was just this idea that you're going to be, you're going to be a business person. You're going to treat this like a true job, but on the court, we're going to surround it with fun. And then off the court, you can do what you want. But when I'm saying we're going to be professional, you're going to be a professional. And, and I think, you know, that allowed him to play tennis, uh, you know, with a longer attention span, which I think is a problem for a lot of these next yep. generation guys is in, especially in a best of five is how long and, and how long is that stretch of great tennis that am I going to have? And you know, I don't know if Tiafo has the consistency, you know, of a, of a top 10 player yet. Uh, you know, I think he's surrounding kind of that top 20 in the world. Um, but there's definitely some excitement there with him. And, and Wayne Frere, he's very understated, isn't he, as well? You, you can see him in the box. He's very understated. I I spoke to him actually on the pod probably 18 months ago now, maybe maybe even a couple of years ago. And um, even his career, Wayne Frere's career, you wouldn't necessarily think he had a great... you think Wayne Frere, he did okay. But I actually had a stat from when we spoke. And the last time Wayne Ferreira played Boris Becker, Stefan Edberg, Pete Sampras, Roger Federer, John McEnroe, and Bjorn Borg, he won the match. So his last match against all of those players, he won. And that even surprised Wayne a little bit. And I know it was an unbelievable statistic that just said, if you are in the mix across that range as well of eras, you know, he's someone who was doing now granted he played Borg actually I think it was in Monte Carlo when Borg had his comeback match when he came back and he didn't have the wooden racket anymore he came back and he wanted to have another go and it was Wayne that he played in the first round but still to have that level and just to, to appreciate and understand that that doesn't change across eras you know you you put the work in you it's day in day out you know you, you up your base level you know, that's what all of these players have had over the years. And and what an amazing guy to have in his corner. And I certainly think that added to the excitement. In terms of our predictions, there was one person that got the men's winner correct. It wasn't Mark Hilton. It wasn't Freddie Nielsen. It wasn't myself who all went for Daniil Medvedev. It was Mr. Noel Rubin who put his, put his word out there on Alcaraz. So a big well done to you on that, Noah. Maybe you knew something we didn't, but I think we did talk about it and it was mentioned that even though he'd had a few losses and, and I don't know if this is 100% true, but I don't think he's lost in straight sets this year. So, so, so nobody's getting past him easy, even when they do get past him. And it's hard to see how he's not going to be world number one over the next two, three, four, five, six years. Uh, even I think with the likes of Djokovic coming back, because I'm not sure... At Djokovic's age, he's going to be able to do it every single week. I think he's going to be hanging his hat on the Grand Slams as well. Yeah, no, I think I agree. I mean, you know, I think both the, the men's and women's tours has this kind of an interesting playing field right now with a little bit lack of consistency. The women had it for the past two years and I think are kind of finding their way now. And the men definitely are in this, you know, uh, new era where, I don't know. I mean, yeah, Casper Ruud's two in the world right now. Do I think he's a consistent two in the world? Uh, I don't. You know, I, I really, I, I don't think he's going to be there. Um, you know, Medvedev, yeah, he played a 
in fantastic form, you know, some of the best tennis I've seen uh, of Nick Kyrgios. You know, we don't know where Nick's going to be. I think I disagree a bit. I think Nick, uh, this took a lot out of him. I think it really did. I think it was exhausting for him. Yes, he's going to be ready for the Australian Open, but I don't know after that tournament what he has in him. So I think the field's a bit open. Um, Alcaraz, yeah, he if his body holds up, it's going to be tough to take that number one spot away from him. I think Djokovic still has a lot of good tennis left in him. And Nadal probably has one ab left and a half a leg that he could still, you know, win French Open on. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting kind of... Uh, stage in tennis and, and this is why i kind of talk about you know we need to form that rivalry you know who you know for alcaraz who is that number two going to be i hope it's a medvedev i think that's a really good combo i think sinner's level of tennis sinner is going to be there yeah yeah but I, I don't know i mean i think even at medvedev he's he said um no more clay basically hates the surface you know you can't have this kind of stuff to have those at the same level that you need to be and you know, just a little lack of consistency at times. But we'll see. We'll see what the next year holds. And Freddie Nielsen, I owe you an apology. You you did pick TFO as the one to watch. Um, I, took, <laughs> I took my usual easy way out. I I, I said the Americans and, and picked four of them. So that's, <laughs> you know, I, I can't fully take it. But TFO was one of my four Americans. Tommy Paul didn't quite make it as as we thought he might, but he's he's again he's someone that's probably due and will have a have a big event at some point. I'm not convinced he's got the got got it in him to be the consistency to be a top five, top ten player. Uh, Mark Hilton picked Dan Evans. You know Dan Evans did have a have a great match actually against Silic. You know put himself in that position. And we mentioned Jack Draper, and I want to quickly mention Jack before we talk about the women's event. Jack was right up there on Kashinov, you know, and he, he had some physical problems, had to stop. But I think Jack Draper has also shown that he's in that mixer. He's, he's probably one of the next next ones for it to come through. And obviously for, for any British tennis fans listening in, that's exciting because I think he's starting to stamp his name as someone that we can see consistently being in the later stages, top top 20 ATP. Um, but moving on to the women's side and... and None of us picked Sviatek to win it. Um, again, I think we're a bit silly in some ways. She'd won 37 matches in a row. Um, she'd had a couple of matches that she'd lost. You know, we, we threw a few names out there. Um, and she just seemed to not necessarily cruise through the draw, but the final, it looked like she was going to cruise through. And, and the point I want to make, Noah, before I send it to you is, like on Jaber, who now has played in two Grand Slam finals, you know some of these young young girls, young tennis players that are that are playing these events. That like if we take on Jaber, she's almost holding the responsibility of African tennis on her shoulders, you know. And we see her smiling her way through. Often she seemed like she had a little bit more tension on her shoulders during this year's Open. There's the picture that everyone captured afterwards in, in floods of tears. And it's not so easy. It's not so easy to take not just a hope of a nation, but a hope of a continent as well. What was, what was your take on the women's event this year? I think it was great. You know, I think, you know, we saw, you know, we spoke a lot about, yeah, we didn't pick the winner, but I think that was almost a little bit too easy of a guess at that point. I think we were kind of going, trying to go a little outside the box, you know, watching uh, Svitek, you know, 
the way she plays, she has a little bit of that Rafa in her sliding out on her non-dominant leg as well. And just, you know, she wakes up and she's like, I'm not going to lose. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably not going to lose. You know, she has, she's one of those players right now. So I think she's at that Alcaraz stage in her own respective way of going to be at the top of the sport for a long time. But uh, with Ons, it's amazing. I mean, tough not to like her, tough not to root for her. Um, You know, she ironically at this point is one of the older girls, you know, competing, which really isn't, you know, uh, mistaken if she's 28 or 29, but you know, it's, you know, comparing to a Coco Goff who made another wave in this, in this grand slam. Um, You know, you have a lot of those really, really true young uh, female tennis players coming out. So I think for her, um, it's not only kind of like the clock is ticking. I got to get some of these slams in, hopefully, you know, get a slam or two under my belt. Um, but also, as you said, you know, have a full continent behind me while I'm doing it. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of great matches. And, you know, I, I brought up Jessica Bugula last time. And, you know, I think after watching uh, her play, I'm pretty certain she's a top five consistent player. Um, I think she has a lot of great stuff. I think Svitek just plays a better of that same game than she does. And that's going to be a tough matchup for her. Um, but yeah, I think the, I think the top five are pretty stable. I think we, we kind of know what the top five, even the top 10 uh, looks like, you know, at this point where, you know, the women, uh, I think it was like Ben Rothenberg that put it together that for two years, they had like 16 different, uh semifinalists or actually 32 different semifinalists amongst you know two years of grand slams which seems almost unfeasible and you know was the way it was so uh it's nice to see it settle down a little bit freddie you've got you you are coco golf's biggest fan i think i think we're all big big fans Mm -hmm. of coco but she she's your one but then we go to the opposite end of the spectrum you got young coco and then we've got old serena who, if we go to the, it seems a lifetime ago, but it, it was really this arena show for the first five, six days of the Open. You know, I think we were, I, I actually spoke to Monty Panesar, a really, it's a really random po- podcast guest for me. I have Monty Panesar, a, <laughs> a famous England cricketer. And I, I spoke to him last week on the podcast because everyone else was pushing me back because of the Open. So I had to jump outside of the sport and, he was like, I'm staying up all night to watch Serena. I can't, I just can't go to bed. You know, like I, I can't go to bed. And I was the same. You know, I respect Serena massively, but I've never been a one to necessarily want to watch Serena. Uh, I found her a little bit obnoxious. I'm not, she haven't quite connected to her, but I, but I certainly did over the last couple of weeks. And um, I had that kind of split thing because. Tom Lanovich was my pick for the one to look out for. And she was playing against Serena. And my ego was telling me, come on, Dan, you can talk about how what a good pick Tom Lanovich is, but how great it would have been to see Serena even go a couple of steps further. But she, she I think, surprised us all with her level, Freddie, last week. Yes, uh, definitely nothing leading into the tournament uh, suggested that she was going to be able to make a run for it. But then when she got through the first few rounds and she beat the uh, Contivate, it was like, okay, now it's interesting. Let's see. Um, but it is she's one of those athletes that just transcends sports. You know, she's a she's a Jordan, she's a Brady, she's a Tiger. Uh, no matter what sport you're following, you know who Serena is, and people are watching to 
to see what what happens and i also you mentioned her longevity i saw a tweet about when she started out tom brady hadn't thrown a a, a touchdown pass from michigan yet she's <laughs> been around forever i mean the the consistency is insane and i think i i mean i was under the impression last time we talked that it was a definite I'm done, but now I can understand that maybe it's not really, and I would just, I would think it would be a shame if it wasn't done, if, if there was so much going into making such a good farewell. I mean, how, how would you want any different? And uh, I, I really hope for her that it is the end. It was a fitting finish. She competed well. She was competitive. It was in New York. She's got all the accolades. And um, I think it's, it's really a great way to go. And I think by now, I, I know some of the older players, Sharapova was even mentioning it as well. It, it can be easy to feel that there's a there's a vacuum there to be filled and there's still some tournaments to be won. And uh, maybe she's still feeling that she's, she's going to be able to get get to the record numbers, but I think now it's 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 just too tough. I mean, she's she's it's going to be tough for her to get two seven matches, and I think it would be a perfect finish for her right now. Yeah, well, the co- the competitor in her would have gone. I'm not far away here. I've beaten the world number two. Mm. Um, you know, this draw's looking kind of open. Uh, I, I know that I'm playing to a good level. H- however, the U.S. Open happens every twelve months. You know, she isn't going to quite have the same crowd behind her at all of these events. That I think gave her an extra 15 percent. Um, and I have to throw this one to you, Noah, because as non-Americans, you know, for me, this is quite an American thing that happened. Uh, you know, I was an LSU Tiger and I, 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 I'm very, very fond of the, of the sport and culture over there. But to pull out the players onto the court, to then project these videos of, of this star, this superstar in front of them, and then to have a big kind of Muhammad Ali entrance onto the court while the players sat there quaking in their boots uh, seemed a little bit unfair to me. And 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 I, and I know uh, we have all respect in the world for Serena, and there's there's a certain way of doing it, and you know she absolutely deserves those accolades. But what what was your what was your take on? Um, I don't know if it was meant to be intimidation tactics, but I, I certainly think it had that it had that effect. I mean, Contivit afterwards was in the press conference crying her eyes out. And she's a lovely girl, Contivit. You know, I've known her since juniors. And, and, and it seemed like that whole experience had been a little overwhelming for her. Yeah, I mean, that's just such a New York thing to do. I think it was kind of expected, to be honest. Um, I think beyond that, and I spoke to uh, Jameer Jenkins because um, I was uh, watching Eubanks play center. I came out, actually got me to come out to the open. Um, but uh, yeah, and I said, I literally, I had my phone watching Serena, which again, haven't watched too many matches recently. And I could hear my phone from like the other room. I was like, what's happening? And I asked Jameer and he's like, it was louder against Contavit than it was in the two finals that he saw there with her. So I think it was less about the lead up. And yeah, I mean, that was all, it's all very funny to have that as kind of this uh, preparation, but I think Serena tied her shoes and it was standing ovation, applause, screaming. And, and I think that's where 
I mean, I was just surprised. I really did not expect that from, I, I'm a, I guess I'm almost a little proud of, of the crowd to kind of do that. And I know it's, it's a lot for Annette to deal with and some of these other players, but I mean, this is one of the greatest athletes of all time. It's her yeah. last moment. Um, you know, there's, it just gives a different feel because it's tennis, but any other sport, if you knew Brady, I mean, it's tough with Brady because a guy comes back every other day. But, you know, if you knew it was definitely his last game for sure, you know, it's the same field. But it's, you know, it's it's football. So you're expecting half of that already where tennis, I mean, it was the place was shaking. I mean, the place was literally erupting. So, you know, that's when we talk about the record attendance. I mean, that's all Serena's doing. I mean, that is just one single person. That is Serena Williams getting everybody out there and, you know, I think actually a little disagreement. I don't, I don't think, I think she looks at that tournament and says, yeah, I'd be the number two player in the world, but I don't really have what it takes to consistently go deep. I don't know if I have what it takes to win a slam right now. Um, you know, I'm sure she's watching, you know, the Cocos and, you know, Sviatek and, and she's like, yeah, I don't know if I have that in me right now. And I don't know if I have uh, 12 months of training consistently in me, which is something she would probably have to do. So I think it's a perfect farewell, as Freddie said. And, uh, you know, I think uh, 20 years is enough, you know. <laughs> and, and I just thought... My, let's my be, honest, let's be honest, to that point with the rocking, everybody there was just there to, to, to provide for the Serena Williams show, right? So 100%. they were just there to, because they needed, they, she needed an opponent. I mean, if they could have, if she could have gone on without, they, they would have let her because... There was not be really nobody really that was going to stand a chance uh, with with the crowd and the presentation and the, like Noah said, it's difficult for tennis, but maybe that's what it needs and maybe rightly so, you know. And I thought it was lovely at the end in her in her speech when she said, "I wouldn't be Serena if there wasn't Venus," you know. And I thought that was like a real kind of tearjerker uh, of a you know she she really was in gearing there to 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 the crowds and to and to the whole tennis Who world is older than her ironically you know and not and hasn't left the sport yeah and i know there's family and stuff like that that goes into <laughs> it but it is a bit it is a bit ironic that you know venus the older one uh is still like oh, i got a few more years left or whatever she has left <laughs> it really is and, and on the men's doubles freddie uh joe salisbury rajiv ram uh, a second us open title state world number one you know and just incredible and, and i have to also shout out neil skupski you know and wesley Kuloff. what an amazing year they've had and if if neil had won that i believe they would have moved to world number one as well uh, those guys are all going to potentially play switch partners next week in the davis cup as great britain takes on the usa but what a what a career that uh, Salisbury and what a partnership that's proven to be Salisbury Ram. Oh, absolutely! And um, I was lucky to play a lot with Joe when he kind of made his push from lower hundreds to the to the top of the tour in 2018, and I was very impressed by him uh, back then. He 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 had visions for for bigger than he was. He was always imply, applying himself to a higher level than he was actually playing at. And uh, it's no surprise to me that he's doing well. He's very professional, very, uh, he has got very good vision as to how he's wa he wants to play and how he wants to apply himself. And he's very good at applying that. Every time I played with him, there was no escaping the situation or doing something he's not supposed to or chickening out. Very clutch player. 
um, following a game plan very good and applying himself to, to what he wants to do. And I think he's got a, got a partner in Rajiv who's also very professional and is able to, um, to, to, first of all, he's a great tennis player. That, that's number one. Second of all, I think he's the same. He's got great attitude in following the game plans. And, and I think they have a perfect partnership as in they both get out of it what they want and they don't expect anything more from each other, but they, they hold each other to, to high standards. And um, yeah, I'm super stoked for Joe. Uh, great guy and uh, obviously you mentioned Neil as well same for Neil great guy work well credit to Louis' work as well keeps producing yeah Louis, Louis Kai as he mentioned yeah it's uh, undeniable that he is the best doubles coach out there and the results are there to, to be seen uh, when you mentioned the Brits even mentioned your old player Lloyd Glasspool amazing Keeps making runs now in big tournaments. Also, getting help from Louis, and it's just it's impressive. And they're good guys, and that they're fun to watch. And I'm 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 all behind it. And and doubles, no. This is this is my last point before I want to just ask you guys about the rest of the year quickly. Doubles, it does go under the radar, and it still it still does. And I think there was a story that very much did go under the radar. And I think typically doubles does, but then Czech doubles players, Krajikova and Siniakova won another and, and against yeah, they win it. Taylor Townsend and Katie McNally, who I think was setting 4-1 up in the final. But in doing that, they won the Golden Slam. And they are only the, the uh, there's four players there's Pam Shriver, Gigi Fernandez, Serena Williams, and Venus Williams are the only other female players that can say that they've done the Golden Slam. So they've now won an Olympics. They've won two Roland Garros, two Wimbledons, one Australian Open, and now one US Open. And that is a big story, you know, and it should, it should be a big story in, in our sport. It wasn't really mentioned anywhere. Um, however, I, I want to make sure we go on record to absolutely tip our hat to, to those girls who are putting together an, an incredible, incredible career. And obviously Cryakov is also doing it on, on the, on the single side as well. Yeah, no, it's pretty incredible. I think, you know, tennis shows time and time again, they're not going to talk about doubles as much as, you know, it's something that they act like they care about, you know, when push comes to shove, you know, that article was not really seen, you know, on, on the, uh, main feeds of Twitter or anything else. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's an incredible feed. I mean, it's so tough to do at anything to be that consistent and to be that dominating. Um, yeah. And to Taylor Townsend to come back after having a child and to be in the finals, probably should have won that match with McNally. Um, yeah. Just a lot of fun things to watch on the double side. I mean, Joe Salisbury, I mean, I play that guy in qualifying of my first challenger title Thought the guy was, you know, really nice, super professional. Did I see him winning slam after slam? I didn't know him as well as Freddie did. But, you know, there's there's a lot of stories to be had that just aren't really told. And, uh, yeah, a little bit disappointing, but that's kind of how tennis has been. Yeah. And Taylor, I remember actually, Noah, it, back, back in the day when I was traveling with Josh Ward, Hibbert, Liam Brody, all of those guys. And, you know, we, we I met you uh, along that way, the, the GB USA 
match at Eastbourne, and mm. you know, we all it was always it was always fun. But the the one girl I really remember was Taylor. Yeah. You know, she was like she was the life and soul. She was smiley. She was happy. She was always speaking to everyone. So it's it's lovely to see good people do well as well. No, it was great. Now she's worked her ass off to get to where she is right now. Dealt with a lot of crap, uh, especially from USCA at times and, and going against that. But she is a talented tennis player. Some of the best hands I have seen um, anywhere, especially on the women's tour. And uh, yeah, deserves all the success that she's uh, hopefully going to come across in the next few years. So the, the, the end of 2022, it, it sometimes feels US Open, that's it. But obviously, Freddie, you're out in El Salvador for Davis Cup right now. Uh, there's lots of players getting ready for the Davis Cup. I personally, the Davis Cup finals is in Malaga, actually, which is about an hour from my academy out in Spain. So I'm, I'm hoping that some of the big names are, are going to turn up. We've spent enough money on tickets, I tell you, for the academy that I'm hoping that we might see your Rafa's and we, the, the Alcaraz's and the Andy Murray's and the Djokovic's and you know all of those guys. But just give us one thing, Noah, to look out for for the rest of 2022 before people start getting ready for Australia again. It comes around thick and fast. Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, and being a little bit more of a fan than player at the moment, you know, I think this is going to show what kind of players we have at the top of both sports. You know, yeah, this is definitely from a fan point of view. It's a slam centric kind of viewership. You know, that's where people want to see. But, you know, the reason why Rude will be at the top of the sport is because I I mean, you know, I, I see him being consistent year round for the next 10 years. You know, these are the things that you know, the fans that are just coming to the sport because of Alcaraz or for any story should see what it takes to be a tennis player at the top of the sport. If you're not one of these generational talents like Alcaraz, this is what it takes. And Rude will be, you know, sinner. You know, these guys will be there day in, day out playing very, very good tennis. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe we're wrong. Maybe we see a couple of breakdowns. Maybe we see some of these younger players not taken in stride as well as, you know, the big three. And, I think it has proven a lot. I think it, I think this time, I think the next few years will prove even further just how great and just how dominating the big three were. And even a Murray, even a Warinka, you know, how consistent they really actually were. And that's when I was, I, you know, kind of compared David Ferrer to Casper Ruud in a way, seeing kind of where those primes would match up if, you know, obviously Ruud is not in it, but where it could end up, um, and yeah, we have a lot of interesting tennis to watch, but for me, I even need a break from watching it. You know, I really do. US Open took a lot out of me as a, as a fan. Um, and I, I get why, you know, for a lot of people, it's tough to follow tennis year round. Although Noah, I did see, I did see a picture jump on social media of you um, with the men's final on a small television and the NFL on a big television. So there was, the, was it the secondary it was secondary importance yesterday for you, the U.S. Open final. Yeah, it was. It's funny. I only really became an American football fan last year uh, with my girlfriend in Minnesota. It was super easy to become a fan of them. And I'm not a tremendous football fan. But, uh, yeah, I knew that the finals was not going to be at the level Sinner Alcaraz was. And honestly, until a set and a half, almost two sets, I was kind of bored of the tennis. And it was the first game of the season for the Vikings. So I had a yeah, it uh it was proportionally placed, if that means anything. 
and, and Freddie, you as a as a coach now, my, my last question to you. I've been lucky in the last yeah, two and a half to three years that I've had players that I've coached played against Yannick Sinner, Kasper Ruud, and Carlos Alcaraz. And Yannick Sinner I was at Tunisia 15K. Evan Hoyt played against him in the we scouted him in the first round. He beat Luke Johnson 7-5 in the third. And we scouted him. And and honestly, my scouting was he had a bit of a dodgy forehand, genuinely. And and Evan got all over his forehand, beat him three and four. And the next week he won his first challenger. And he went on that incredible run. So it was literally the the week before he went on that run. Fast forward a few months later, we went to Rafael Nadal's academy for a 15K in Mallorca. And there was a young 16-year-old, everyone was talking about him. Juan Carlos is my age. So we, me and my partner won tarbs under 14s in 1994. And Juan Carlos won tarbs singles in 1994. So we were, we were kind of sharing stories and I said, come on, how good's this kid? You know, we, I'd watched him practice and he said, he's already top hundred level easily. He just needs to now play the tournaments. And he beats Evan Hoyt in, in the semifinals and Casper Ruud in Davis cup. I was helping out the Irish Davis cup team. Pete Bothwell played Casper Ruud and actually um, had him five, four in the first set at 30 all on Casper Ruud's serve. But all three of them were the most professional guys in the tournament. All three of them. Yannick Sinner was always on the practice court. Kasper Ruud was doing every last detail that you could imagine. You know, you, you, you saw it. Alcaraz was out there. He was then in the gym. He didn't miss a beat. You know, and, and, and that is the reality for us as coaches. We want those role models. Kyrgios, we love him. But he's a dangerous role model because the kids think they can go that route. They think they can just have that skill. And, and, and you, there's only one or two generational talents that can get away with being a half-decent player like that. So for you as a coach, how good is it to have those three guys and your Igor Sviontechs that are at the absolute top of the game right now and, and showcasing all of the values of a decent human being as well as all the values that it takes to be a, a top high performer. For me, it's nice. I mean, I, I, I do like it and I do like that you have somebody to put up on a pedestal and say, see, see what they do. Um, from, from, the, from a coaching point of view, I'm very much a big fan of the versatility of the human mind. And I, I, I want to firmly believe that although it will probably be difficult to work with, There has to be room for the for the outliers and the geniuses who do it differently, like the Nick Kyrgios's. And, uh, as, uh, and 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 I like to draw the line where, where it gets personal and insulting towards other people personally, but within the 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 specter to show your emotions and all that, and finding a way to get the best out of Nick is is also fascinating. And I like that. I I think that there should be room for that in within the tennis and I would be disappointed in myself if I if I tried to uh, to make all my my players look the same way um, I think uh, that, that their personalities have to come out on court and I think that's what these guys do genuinely they're not trying to be anything different they're genuinely like this as a person the professional side of it obviously 
goes without saying. I think that's something that I would never want any player to question. Uh, and I also am a firm believer. Now we have a lot of, uh, we have mainly futures players in Denmark that I, that I work with. And I'm a strong believer in, in, in having world-class attitude, no matter what tournament you're at. And I don't think that you uh, need to adapt to different levels. I think you try and, uh, and, and apply yourself to the best level possible no matter what tournament you're at. And I think that's what these guys have been doing pretty well. And they've had the vision to see what it takes to be a good player. Uh, from what I know, Casper started early with his physical coach and, and put in a big plan of that. I don't have uh, particularly knowledge of how the other boys did. And then they did it no matter where they were. And, I, and I'm, a, I'm a big believer of that. You've got to stay in the moment, but you've got to be able to see where you want to go and apply yourself. And application is number one. Everybody can say that they want to be number one in the world. It's the easiest thing in the world to say. However, your actions need to pack it. You got to be able to see it with, with, with what you do. <clears throat> Excuse me. With what you do. And these guys have put it in. And I want to see that with, with my players as well. I want to hear what they want to do. And then I want to see the application because, like I said, saying, saying what you want to do is the easiest thing in the world. I can say it to you, Dan, I want to be number one in the world. But it's completely bonkers if I'm just lying around and not putting in the effort. So, yeah, to summarize, I do like the versatility. I think there should be room for people to 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 express themselves in different ways. And I think if you put Casper Ruud's attitude uh, approach to, to the game uh, down to, we've used them a lot, but down to Curious, I don't think you're going to get a particularly great version of Curious. But at the same time, the professionalism, I also want, you know, the professionalism of the being able to concentrate and, and prolong your career. That's that's what I also want in a player. You know, I'm not so interested in short-term success. I want consistent success. I want my players to continue winning over a longer period of time. And if you're a professional and your body stays healthy, I think you'll improve your chance of doing that. Guys, you're, you're, you're true gents to, to come on, give you time. You really are. Um, I know we were going to have a couple more. It's, it's proving in the outside of the pandemic was much easier. The, inside the pandemic was much easier. People were locked in hotel rooms. You know, now people have lives. Mm -hmm. So, you know, getting all of these timelines together is difficult. But I'm just going to leave the listener with, with one thing. And you've said it, Freddie, but a world-class attitude is in your control. You know, hitting a world-class forehand isn't. And that's what control the controllables is, is, is all about. It's another great conversation, guys. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having us. And once again, I, I love the conversation. I really do. I could talk tennis all day long, and I often do. It's kind of my job. Sometimes the logistics of, of what you're doing, running a tennis academy, gets in the way of the passion of talking shop, talking tennis, and to have these tennis people on the other side of the laptop, being able to see them and, and talk. I could I could talk for hours. And, and as we discussed there, so many storylines, so many bits to pick up. And just one thing I'd like to pick up here at the end of today's show, we touched on it there at the end, and it's role modelling. It's something that I think a lot about, I, I talk a lot about. And, you know, are these super superstars the real role models that, for us to follow? And I think Alcaraz is almost that generational talent. Yes, he's a role model. He's amazing. He's, he's special for the sport, but he's also quite hard to touch because I saw him at 16 years old. He was already at the top 100 level. 
he's 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 almost a freak of nature in that way. You know, whereas what I love about the Casper Ruud story, I think Yannick Sinner has it himself as well. On Jabir has it in, in abundance, 28 years old, having the best year of her career. They're more touchable. They're, we can we can relate to them much better, you know, and I, and I think if Casper Ruud, there's people out there going, well, Casper Ruud gets to world number two, then it's a chance for us all. And that's not a disrespect of Casper because he is everything that, that we want our tennis players to be. He lives the professional life. He puts it out there every single day. But he's just a little bit more the normal people's person. He's not quite that generational talent. Yet here he is in 2022 in two Grand Slam finals. But he puts it in. He puts it in. Cameron Norrie, the same. These these are the players that we want also our kids to look up to. You know, these are the ones that maybe it's a little bit more tangible in terms in terms of the journey that they were on. They weren't necessarily set for this absolute stardom, which which in Alcaraz and Nadal these these guys were. And I think that for me is a big big takeaway from this year's U.S. Open. The stars, the amazing people we're seeing in the crowd, the John Bon Jovis, you know, we saw Michelle Obama, you know, New York is really the place to be. I can't wait to go back there, whether it's next year or in the, in the near future. But thank you to everyone that was involved in the event for giving us two incredible, incredible weeks. But my last message, as we all know, it was an emotional two weeks. And as we moved into the second weekend towards the end of the tournament, the sad news came through from the UK that our queen, you know, the, the our grandmother, the, the person who we've all looked up to, the person who's always been on our screens, you know, who's given us comfort. Whatever your thoughts are on the monarchy, this is not the show that I'm going to get involved in, in those sort of discussions. But I know certainly on a personal level, I've, I've lived 42 years and, and I had a real feeling of, of sadness in a very busy week at the academy just to, to stop and, and feel a bit overcome with the emotion of it all. And I have thought about it a lot the last few days. And it is that it's somebody that's no longer there that took that role, took that position gave us all strength, made us all feel like things are okay, made us feel that things are normal, all of the challenging things that go on in the world. And it wouldn't be right for me to speak in this week without mentioning the Queen and rest in peace. You know, I really do thank you for, for all that you did, our country, but also the Commonwealth and, and the rest of the world to give your life. And I had a discussion with the tennis players on this today who, who maybe don't quite understand who the Queen is and uh, in terms of in terms of her position, but to give up her life to 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 play that role and, and be that be that figurehead for for so many people out there. And it was it was incredibly sad. It's been a sad sad few days. But back to the tennis we will be back now that the US Open is not on. I've got all of my eyes on, on many different tennis people that have got no excuse now not to be jumping onto the podcast. So, so watch this space as always. And until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>